Revelation chapter 20 is where we're going to begin this morning. I have far, far, far from exhausted all that we could say and know and do about denominations, um, so I'm not going to make that claim. Uh, but I am going to kind of begin to wind this down, and then I'm going to take, I understand, and I, I need to listen to it, it's on my to-do list, but I understand that when, when I was gone in October, Josh Wormley, one of his Sunday school lessons included some really good stuff on Mormonism. So I don't know that I'll do that. I'm going to do one on Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and then I'll, I've got some questions pertaining to things that we've discussed. And then whatever questions arise from our time dealing with uh, end time events, I will try and tackle. And then I'm going to move us into something that I, I think is, I'm hoping is going to be helpful along the denominational track, but will not just simply be uh, further studying denominations. Revelation chapter 20 is where we are this morning. Let's pray. And uh, we will turn our attention to the text and to the outline. Father, we thank you for your words and we pray, Father, that we would have wisdom and understanding and faith in all that you say. And uh, Lord God, you know that there are few subjects more confusing to us than future events. So help us to be, again, wise and understanding, but also gracious as much as we can be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, let's go ahead and read these first six verses this morning of Revelation chapter 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgments were given unto them, and I saw the souls of them which were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So this passage, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say this passage colors virtually every position in every discussion when we talk about end time events or what we know more formally as eschatology. Uh, when we met two weeks ago, we spent our time talking about fundamentals of end-time events that most Bible believers agree on. Uh, most Protestant liberal theology does not concern itself with these things, being by design and by declaration much more focused upon the present. 
right now, fixing this world, living out whatever their view of Christianity is in this world. So this morning, so we're just going to kind of flip that coin over. We've looked at things upon which we agree that there is a literal, real second coming. We don't know exactly when it will be, but it is really going to happen. This morning we will just look at basically three major views of interpreting this passage and then place the denominations kind of where they go. It is not my purpose, okay? I just want to, I, I, will, I will entertain any question you ask. I will, I will endeavor to address it. And if you put it in writing, like I've already said, I've had several questions, I'm, I will attempt to deal with them. But, but it is not my intention to deal with these positions in, from anything resembling a thoroughgoing examination of their strengths, weaknesses, pros, cons, but just kind of to map them out for you and the way, broadly the way that people would understand them and then to associate different denominations with them. Basically, people have taken one of three views with reference to the events in Revelation 21 through 6. The word millennium is used six times in those six verses. And the word millennium, of course, means thousand years. And then it is used again in the seventh verse, which we did not read. When the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. <clears throat> So thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. How do we interpret that? And again, folks, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say virtually everything that we discuss about end time events is in one way or another going to be related to how we view Revelation chapter 21 through 6. So number one in your outline, amillennialism. And let me just spell it for those, right? Because I, I always struggle to spell it. And, but it, so it's A-M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L-I-S-M. So two L's, two N's, amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches, and you've got a lot of information on your outline this morning, you note, so I've kind of crammed the spaces. I try trying to get the outline so that you just have it on one sheet of paper for your own uh, use and storage. Uh, so amillennialism teaches that there is no future millennium of any length. There is no future millennium of any length. And so with reference to Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6, letter B, the events in Revelation 20, 1 through 6 are this present church age. You're living. You're living in the millennium. Amillennialism teaches that we are right now at this moment living in the millennium. So therefore, the, word, the expression thousand years is not to be taken literally, obviously, but is representative of a figure of speech meaning a very long time. And also, and I'm not, again, not trying to work through all of the details of amillennialism, but part of the teaching of amillennialism is that Satan is now presently bound. Because this, this period of time involves the binding of Satan. And so he is presently bound. So 
So we have been living, right? So, so that brings me then to letter C on our outlines. The sequence of events then, broadly, the sequence of events would look like this. There is, first of all, the church age, the one in which we are living, described in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. At the end of whatever amount of time this is, at the end of whatever amount of time this is, Jesus Christ will return. That is the second coming. That is what is described in Revelation 19. Which will then include the resurrection of both the lost and the saved and the final judgment and the judgment seat of Christ. And that will be followed by the eternal state. Revelation 21 and 22. So this is, this is, again, classic amillennialism, no millennium. It is, it is not describing a literal series of events. And part of the argument for that is, is that this is the only passage that describes it in that time frame. So, so that, that is one of the obstacles to them dealing with it literally is that it's not found taught literally any other place. So some of the amillennial um, denominations would be Roman Catholic. In fact, I don't know if they still do, but back in the Middle Ages, they actually criminalized teaching any other position. Lutherans are for the most part amillennial. And here's one of this is one of those areas, folks, where it, it's you you really have to look at every individual church. I can speak broadly about denominational movements, but you would have to you would have to look at individual churches to know where they stood, or or talk to 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 people in them. Uh, this is going to be also the position of Anglicans and Episcopalians. It is also going to be the position of many, I, maybe on your outline it says some, I can't remember what's on your outline, some many reformed or covenant theology ministries. So this, this would include Pres, reformed Presbyterian, like Dutch reformed, reformed Baptists would be amillennial in their position. Most modern Methodists would not take a position because their argument again would be we don't, we don't deal with future events. We are not concerned with eschatology. We are concerned with the here and now. John Wesley himself was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, and so John Wesley was highly influenced by a Lutheran theologian by the name of Johann Bengel. And Wesley then, depending upon what sermon you're reading and where he's talking, and he's not trying to be contradictory or evasive, but, but, but John Wesley would really never have been amillennial, but some of his writings would lean postmillennial and some would lean premillennial. And that was in part because Johann Bengel found both of them in Revelation 21 through 6. And we will get to that in a moment. I do want to point this out, folks. 
that amillennialism is considered to be the classical um, reformed position. So that if you go back to, to reading the Puritans, for instance, if you go back into the 17th century and you begin to read the Puritans, they were for the most part amillennial. It is, it is kind of their, their default position, and we'll talk about this in a minute when we talk about postmillennialism. But, but it was the default position of most of the Puritans, most of the people who have just heavily, heavily, heavily influenced our, our world and our understanding of Christianity. Um, one of the things that, that happened as a result of the events of the Middle Ages, particularly with reference to the practice of Christianity in England, was these, these men wrote extensively and volume upon volume upon volume of sermons and books. And many times this was because they had been legally silenced by the Anglican Church itself. They were not allowed to preach. And so these men wrote and so we have, we have reams of information by, some of the, by these people. And again, the, the dominant position that they tended to hold was one of amillennialism, that, that these events were all to be. And, and one of the things then, again, without going back in and re, trying, to, trying to map it all out, folks, is that you then go back through the Old Testament, which talks about kingdom events, and you have to make them metaphors or images or allegories in their own right. For instance, if Revelation 20 is simply the description of the entirety of the church age, and Isaiah says that there is coming a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb, that you can't, you can't think of that literally. You have to deal with that metaphorically. That, that has a metaphorical meaning, not a literal meaning. So, so this would be the way that, that they would handle most of those passages. And just, just to give you a heads up, in, in a couple of weeks we're going to be done with Lamentations and we're going to turn our attention, for some reason, I think that we should, but I don't really want to, we're going to turn our attention to Song of Solomon. And uh, probably the most allegorized, metaphorically treated book in the entire Bible. So this is just a way of handling these passages. So there's the first one on your outline. Number two on the outline is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism is in some ways a rejection of amillennialism. It is looking at the same passages, and, and we will get to this, but it is often held by many of the same people, or the same groups of people, who have looked at the Bible and gone, amillennialism obviously doesn't answer the, the, what's being taught in this passage. Postmillennialists teach that there is a millennium, but it doesn't last a thousand years. Again, thousand years is just a figure of speech for a very long time. And so for them, the sequence of events is a little bit different. I mean, amillennialism is pretty straightforward. Church age, um, 
return of Christ, eternal state. Boom. Postmillennialists believe that the church age in which we are now living will ultimately give way to the millennium as the gospel becomes more and more successful on earth. So postmillennialism definitely believes, passionately believes, that the gospel will triumph. Again, this is just this is just Kenny Largent's observation question. They ask questions about the position that I hold. I would ask questions about the position that they hold. You will never find a post-millennialist who is not also a five-point Calvinist. So built into their post-millennialism is the belief that over the course of time, God will elect more people to be saved because only the saved only the elect will ever be saved. Because post-millennialism, folks, hinges upon, if, if, if the gospel does not triumph, post-millennialism falls apart no matter what Bible verses they quote. It is built upon the eventual success of the, of the gospel. There have been some post-millennialists who have conceded that this might take one man said, up to 90,000 years, but the gospel will triumph. So, again, with reference to your outline, the sequence of events is that this present church age will ultimately become the millennium as the gospel produces more and more believers on earth. And I think having just said that, folks, you can understand why you will never find anybody, or rarely, back up, you will, never, you will rarely find anybody who who seriously lobbies and advocates for Christian nationalism, who is not a post-millennialist. I mean, they, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. It also promotes itself as the optimistic view of eschatology. Our view, or my view, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, my view is, is considered to be a pessimistic view of eschatology their view they consider to be the optimistic view of eschatology because after all, right, the gospel is going to win. When that millennium finally does arrive, right, when the gospel triumphs to an adequate degree, then Jesus will return to earth and will take his kingdom for himself. So we are engaged, not, not in a sinful way, we are engaged in building God's kingdom. This is the work of evangelism. We are engaged in discipling the nations. This is the Great Commission. We are engaged in bringing every part of society under the leadership of the gospel. This is part of the Great Commission. And when we have done that at some unknown time to God's satisfaction, God will send his son to reign as king over it. In the post-millennial world, if there is a rapture, not all post-millennialists believe in a rapture, but if there is a rapture, this is when it happens. That the return of Christ and the rapture are kind of built into the same, I don't, they're not the same event, but they're built into the same condensed time frame. That Jesus will be returning 
he will call his people up to him, gather them with him while he is in the air coming down, and they will all come down together to be with him. But again, not all post-millennialists believe in the rapture. So the present church age will become the millennium, and when, when it is that millennium, Christ will return, and that may not be exactly the way that they would put it, but that's the way I'm going to describe it. Jesus will come back to earth, a literal second coming. He will take over the kingdom. It will belong to him. At that point in time, there will be the resurrection of the lost and the saved, the final judgment of the lost and the judgment seat of Christ, and that will give way to the eternal state. <clears throat> so that is post-millennialism. <clears throat> so post-millennial denominations would be, again, some reformed, and that's just going to vary by church and denomination. Because again, <clears throat> right, it, it's, it, it interacts with all of these views, interact with each other, folks. I mean, we're, we, you know, we're, 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 we're like three gossips sitting around, right, talking about our positions and talking about the other guy's position and why we could never be that position or what's wrong with that position or what questions you can't answer in that position. But post-millennialism is, of course, they would argue the, the rightful interpretation of the scripture. I guess maybe the better way to put it, it is viewed by many amillennialists as a betrayal of true Reformed theology. True Reformed theology should be amillennial, a distorted form of Covenant or Reformed theology would be post-millennialism. So Christ, Christ does not sit to reign on earth for long, just long enough to claim what is his, to resurrect the lost and the saved, to judge the lost and the saved, and to move us into the eternal state. The third broad way of interpreting Revelation 21 through 6 is, of course, the one that you are probably most familiar with, most of you as far as I know, not all of you, but many of you, having lived as a lifelong Baptist or some kind of Baptistic church, is premillennialism. Premillennialism. And, of course, premillennialism teaches simply that Christ will return prior to the millennium. Now, I don't know. <clears throat> I don't want to speak for you, but what you may or may not know is that there are two major schools of thought within the premillennial world. Not all premillennialists are the same. And in fact, folks, when it comes to eschatology, not everybody is, very often nobody is the same as anybody else, even in the same camp. Uh, but so the two major schools of thought are these. First of all, and this is on your outline, I'm sure, classical, what is called classic premillennialism, classic premillennialism. And classic premillennialism teaches that the church will go through the tribulation. That there's going to be a tribulation and the church will go through the tribulation. 
And then the second school of thought, the one probably that most of you are most familiar with, is what is called pre-tribulational premillennialism. We like to get all of our pre's in a row. Pre-trib, pre-mill. And this, of course, is the one that teaches that the church will be raptured prior to the tribulation. So that it's really not a stretch if somebody says that they are a premillennialist to ask them what kind of premillennialist they are. And of course, folks, and again, because it's not my intention to work through all of the variations and argue for all of their points, there are some people who believe that the church will go through half the tribulation. For the sake of what we're doing, they would just be classic. I'm not trying to demean them. But I mean, they would fall within that classical view that Christians will experience some element of the tribulation. So that the sequence of events would go somewhat like this. For those who are classical, right, there is the church age, the age in which we're living. The church age will give way to the tribulation. And the tribulation, folks, begins not with the rapture, because that, they come, that comes later, but the tribulation begins with the signed agreement between the Antichrist and Israel. The tribulation will give way to the millennium. Right at the, at the end of the tribulation, Christ will return. I guess I should put that in there. That's not in your outline. But after the tribulation will be the return of the second coming of Christ, the millennium, the final judgment of both the lost and the saved, the judgment seat of Christ, and the eternal state. For those who are pre-tribulational, right, the sequence is similar with the exception of adding the rapture in there. There is the church age, the rapture, and of course our understanding would be that the rapture would come at about the time of the signing of the tribulation or just in the beginning of the tribulation, I mean before it really begins, the rapture the tribulation, that seven, we, so we would look at that as the seven-year period of time. The second coming of Christ, the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, the final judgment and the judgment seat of Christ and the eternal state. So post-millennialism would argue that we will, we will labor successfully until we have succeeded in a, in a way that Christ would come and claim what is his. And pre-tribulationists would argue that Christ will come and set up for himself what is his. And this is one of the reasons that we are viewed as being somewhat pessimistic. And that doesn't really bother me. I tend to think of it as being more realistic, but that's neither here nor there. All right, so premillennial denominations. If we're going to be dieted, you know how long we be. So we'll be done way early. So if you have questions, we'll just, we'll just take them and let them fly, or we'll go back and lament that there are no donuts left. 
right? Premillennial denominations. I'm just going to, I'm going to milk that thing for all I can get out of it. <laughs> Love you, Paul. <clears throat> all right, premillennial denomination is going to be most Baptists, which would include Southern Baptists, Independents, and other various Baptist associations. Not all, because there are Reformed Baptists. This is going to be the official position of the Evangelical Free Church. Again, I'm not saying that every E-free congregation would fall into that line, but in general, the E-free denomination is a premillennial denomination. This is not necessarily an official denomination, but most churches that are identified as Bible churches are going to be premillennial. And the reason for that, and I don't remember how much of this I left in your outline, the Bible church movement, the, the Bible church movement, and again, not every church that calls itself a Bible church. Right? Like, you know, if we, we could just go Westwood Heights Bible church. But the churches that deliberately label themselves to be in association with other Bible churches are for the most part the result of the influence of Dallas Theological Seminary. And Dallas Theological Seminary is the banner carrier of premillennial dispensational theology. Lewis Berry Schaefer, I mean, the, the Dallas people were, are leading advocates of premillennialism, dispensational theology. They write for it, advocate for it. So it, it only stands to reason, folks, that their graduates from Dallas Theological Seminary are going to be inclined to be premillennial in their theology. Although I have heard <clears throat> Pastor Mark Minnick at Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina, who taught for many years at Bob Jones University, lament that so many young men graduating from Bob Jones University were embracing amillennialism. So what you were taught in school does not necessarily represent what you will hold in the future. That's a whole other conversation. To go back to your outline, many Pentecostal denominations are going to be premillennial. Many are Pentecostal. And then I'm just going to mention this. It is not truly a denomination, but there are lots of people who attend uh, affiliated chapels in you know, this is not an endorsement of them, but Calvary Chapel, uh, the group founded by Chuck Smith, is, is going to be a premillennial in his position. And again, folks, I mean, right, because at the, at the end of the day, right, if I can just, you know, at the end of the day, right, we all have, we all have what the Lord said. We all, we all have the same copy of what the Lord said. And whatever the, Lord, whatever the Lord is going to do is what the Lord is going to do. He is not running a democratic republic. He is going to do what he is going to do. And so all of his people, that includes to some extent you, some of you are more enamored of this than others, and I don't mean that in any kind of a bad way. Uh, before I got saved, I was very much interested in end-time events, and when I got saved, that just kind of dried up all my interest in end-time events. Um, but we're, we're all reading the same material, folks, and we're all coming to different conclusions. 
And, and we're all arguing, sometimes passionately, sometimes very unpleasantly, for the position that we hold. So, but again, these are, these are basically the, one of the, the, the three places in which you would find yourself. Revelation 21 through 6 describes nothing literal. It describes something literal, and at the end, Jesus will come, but it's not really a thousand years. Or it describes it as we take it, where all of the events we attempt to interpret literally, which is one of the reasons we are criticized for the position as being unnecessarily literal in our interpretation of Revelation 21 through 6. So, all right. So that's what I've got. And I'm not going to stand up here and belabor it. Do you have any particular questions about any of this? Other than why am I doing it to you? What about mission boards? No, I don't think. Are, are some both? No, I wouldn't think so. I would think boards would tend to boards would tend to be Baptist boards, which would tend to be premillennial boards. That's what I would think. That's what I. Now, you know, as, as you know, right, you know there. You know how many how many different types of Baptists are there? But but broadly, no, I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. I, I don't. None of the ones that we support. That, not, that we don't support. None of the ones that with we, we associate do, to my knowledge. They would all be premillennial. This is your Almec. Yes. Yes. That, so the, the, the struggle will be real and the struggle will be up and down. I mean, you know, boy, it's just, it's just such a stretch to me to be a millennial. I mean, I just go, Satan, Satan is bound? Right? And see, even that, I mean, look, without being snarky, folks, look at what you have to do to the text of Scripture to hold that position. Because amillennialists say that Satan is bound greatly reducing his influence and this is what's going to enable the gospel to advance, right? It's because Satan is being limited. But that is not what the text says. It doesn't say that Satan will be bound and his power will be limited. The text says that Satan will be bound and he will no more deceive the nations. I don't know why it's hard to take that literally. I don't know why I should look at that verse and go, I know that's what it says, but it doesn't really mean that. I don't know why I should look at the verse and think that a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years, as if God has somehow developed a stutter and he can't speak clearly. But that passage in particular, the text says, no more deceive the nations. And without going back, folks, and trying to, I just, right, let me just, let me just refer you back to the book of Daniel and to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 10 to this very reality that there are satanic forces over nations. Folks, this is part of the problem. This is why I jump on this horse, this little rocking horse every once in a while. You got to stop thinking that CNN is the problem. CNN is a tool, so is Fox News, by the way. 
right? There are demonic influences at work over the nations. The Bible is very clear about that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers. Folks, that's not mainstream media that Paul is talking about. So there is coming a time, according to Revelation 20, when that will be halted, when Satan will no more be able to deceive the nations, or it just means that his power will be reduced and the gospel will have better soil in which to, to sow. So, Dave? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. No, 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 that's not what I said. That's not what I said. No, no. Well, there's, there's more evil than human evil. <clears throat> but I think, you know, and this is, right, this, I'm very hard-pressed to, to, to develop and teach this, but, but to me, Dave, one of the reasons for the necessity of the literal thousand-year kingdom and the necessity of Satan being bound Right? To me, the millennial kingdom is essential to bring the entirety of God's plan to full circle. Right? I mean, it, it just seems to me, right? I mean, if, in and I'm just, right? if, 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 we, if the, the choir sang this morning and, and we just didn't sing the last three measures of the song, right? We just got to the end and they just got up and went away. Right? We would go, it's not over. Right? And God created something on earth and he gave to Adam and Eve an assignment and a task that he always intended to fulfill through Christ. And if there's no earthly kingdom, right, then Genesis 1.1 and Genesis chapter 2 is unresolved. That would be my understanding. And part of that is God's demonstration of the sinfulness of humanity even if there's no Satan in the world. So you have a thousand years where there's only good. Folks, for a thousand, it, look, people, I get it, I got asked, do people die during the millennium? Yes. Now again, I couldn't prove this, but I think that the text of Isaiah supports it, right, when it talks about a child dying at 100, right? The age spans that we are experiencing right now, 70, those were imposed during the wilderness wanderings. Moses talks about them in the, in the book of Psalms. And nothing that we do, folks, is really going to stretch or alter that much. We live to about 70 worldwide. The average life expectancy is 73. If you really work hard and have great health and great, you know, great sanitation, you're going to get close to 80. And if you do, you're going to live like an 80-year-old, and that's going to be the way that that goes. But I think during the millennial kingdom, God is going to undo that limitation, and we're going to see lifespans back to what they were in the pre-flood era. Why not? Right? It's not that human beings couldn't, couldn't live 900 or 1,000 years. And folks, again, if I can get on another one of my hobby horses, it's not processed food that's keeping you from living 900 years. It's a divine decree that's keeping you from living to be 900 years old. That can be undone. So, right? so there will be human beings living. People will die. Death will be relatively rare. Economically, there will be peace. Politically, there will be righteousness. The world will be a wonderful place. And people will still hate it because people are intrinsically evil. So that when Satan is loosed, right, with almost no effort at all, everybody rallies to his side, thus demonstrating once and for all the inferiority of human beings. Now, again, that would be my understanding of the whole package. Who did I miss? John. If they believe that Satan is bound, 
I, I don't know, right? The question is, what do you do with 1 Peter 5.8? And, and the answer is, I don't know. I, I don't really know. I mean, it just, that's what I say. To me, right, if, if the only thing at stake, folks, were Revelation 21 through 6, okay, that would be one conversation. But it isn't the only thing that is at stake. It, it is the entirety of an Old Testament that talks about a kingdom. What is going to I want to come, let me come back to you, Dave. I, did I answer both of your questions? Did I address both? I'm not saying answer. Did I address both of them? Iva? No. Okay. Let me get back and address Iva's question because she wanted to ask too. Well, the second coming would be after, in, at the end of Armageddon. I mean, sorry, yes. Yes. Well, I would think so, yes. The, the millennium would be the fulfillment of the kingdom because we do believe in an already not yet dimension of the kingdom. Right? The kingdom exists. Right? We're under the reign of Christ. I mean, believers are, at least in theory, doing what God says. Um, <clears throat> but... And the Bible says that Jesus is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. So, and, and you know, look, folks, there, there are real challenges to, to millennialism. I, I don't want to suggest to you for a moment. The, the biggest one is the role and the purpose of Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48. Um, unlike any other temple anywhere, is it a real temple? Is it an imaginary temple? Is it a metaphorical temple? Um, and if it's a real temple, are there really going to be animal sacrifices again because Christ was the end of animal sacrifice? I mean, there are just all kinds of things. And, and these kinds of questions are some of the, and the answer to those questions are some of the things that drive people away from a little literal interpretation. So none of us have clean hands. And, and none of us have all the answers. I do not have all the answers. Okay, to go back now to you, Dave, and then to you, Jim. Right. If Satan is bound, you can't be influenced by him. Well, again, Dave, that depends on how you're going to answer the question. And a millennialist would just simply say that the binding reduces his influence. I think Satan's influence is so I do not disagree with you, but then, but, Dave, but then, Dave, for the entirety of your believing Christianity, you've been in a Baptist church, so we've always taught you that. We're still well. Well, in the millennium, we're going to we're going to be saved sinners, but our sin nature is going to have been, which is another one of the another one of the challenges, right? Because will we not have new bodies? Not those that aren't. Yes, the 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 millennial kingdom will be characterized by many people just like we are today who I think live for five, six, seven, eight hundred years easily. And again, I'm basing that, and I can't, I'd have to get out my concordance to look at it, but, but Isaiah talks about the fact that for someone to die at a hundred, they will be considered to be a child. 
we don't consider 100-year-olds children, folks. So again, that's, that's either very metaphorical, right? That's, e that's either a metaphorical description of something, or there is another alteration to human life expectancy that if you, if you die at 100, you died very young. Well, if human beings live to 900, to die at 100 is very young. I mean, if, you, if life expectancy is, let's just say, 800 and you die at 100, that's one-eighth of your life. If life expectancy is 80, that's like dying at, what, 10? That's young. Nobody says about a 10-year-old, boy, that's sad. They, but at least they lived a good full life. That doesn't happen. Okay, Jim. I mean, and then I'll get to you, Ms. Asplund. Uh, Dr. McGee said that the state was on a change nowadays. He said, and I agree, he's got a very long chain. He's got a very long chain, doesn't he? So anyway, I, you know, to me, the, the binding of Satan, that's, that's just a real tough one. Mrs. Asplund? Yes. Yes, he will be released. Again, we're looking at that literally, so it, it, that part doesn't pose any problems to me, right? I mean, I, look, I, I admit that some of the resurgence of the Old Testament stuff, you know, that's a little bit of an uphill... Uh, we didn't even get into this, folks, but, you know, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and, you know, we have almost waged wars over when that happened, and I, I'm not exaggerating about that. There's a lot of heatedness over when that comes. So not everything is directly connected to Revelation 20, but Revelation 20 informs a lot of it. Yes, ma'am. So, so Mrs. Asplund makes the point that, that a lot of it has to do with Israel. And you're absolutely right, Mrs. Asplund. And this is one of the reasons, right? This is one of the reasons that you will always find somebody who is premillennial arguing for God renewing his relationship with ethnic Israel. And this is one of the reasons why you will always find somebody who is amillennial or postmillennial believing that the church has replaced Israel. Because we come to these passages and go, I, I would, I mean, if I was teaching on the tribulation, folks, the primary point of the tribulation is Israel. It is not really about the Antichrist. It is not about the world. It is not about the four horsemen. The primary objective of the tribulation is Israel. And the way God uses all of those people and all of those events to bring Israel to what his intention for Israel is, Romans chapter 11, all Israel will be saved, fulfilled in Zechariah. So we would look, I would look at it and teach, God is not done with Israel, Romans 11 teaches that. But again, a covenant theology, a reform theology, would not believe that. They would believe that because Israel was so treacherous, God divorced Israel and God took you. 
And therefore, it doesn't look as any of those end-time events as having anything to do with Israel. There needs to be no regathering of Israel in a literal sense. There needs to be no salvation of future Israel. You're Israel. You're the church. And so this is, this is where, you know, some of where the, the big debate and conflict come. Again, I need to close with this so we can get to church. But folks, as, as much as I might disagree with those people, and I would disagree with so much of Reformed theology, I would point out that they are not necessarily enemies. And I would point out further that we are tremendously indebted to them historically. Um, we just are tremendously indebted to them historically. These have been banner carriers for Christianity. They have oftentimes borne the brunt of persecution and hatred for their stance for Christ. So we would disagree with them, but we, we don't hate them. And I don't think this is the case, but, you know, we may find ourselves on the outside looking in one day as they were right and we were not. So that could be the way it goes. Okay, if you have any more questions, please do not hesitate to email them to me or put them in my mailbox. I'm going to try and just deal with them um, as they're asked. And we'll be back at 11 o'clock.